This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping engineers succeed in work and life. The show is hosted by engineering enthusiast Anthony Fasano and Chris Knutson. Both are professional engineers who found success early in their careers and now work together to help other engineers do the same. Now it's showtime. This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the show for engineers who want to succeed in both work and life. And I'm Chris Knutson, your host for today's episode. And I trust that this finds you doing exceptional wherever you are and whatever engineering project you happen to be working on at the moment. Well, I'm truly excited about today's episode, which dives again into the topics of leadership, management, and teamwork development. Now, these are skills that never go out of style and are also vitally important to your engineering career success. And if you're an engineering company owner, the success of your entire firm. Anthony and I were contacted by today's guest a few months ago, and since then, I've had the opportunity to establish a good friendship with him. His name's Steve Armstrong. He's a leader, soldier, humanitarian, and coach. And today's episodes can contain a large number of great leadership golden nuggets, and I hope that you find one or two that you can put into the bank and turn these into truly, truly strong strengths in how you bring your leadership into your engineering career work every day. We're going to cover from how to find a mentor to be one, to developing the skills necessary to identify your strengths and then run with them. Steve and I cover a lot of ground in this episode, so lace up your boots, get a drink, and plan to move out. But before we do that, I want to remind you that tickets for the Engineering Career Summit, which is going to be held 12 to 14 May in New Orleans, which is our annual in-person event, now those are still available, and you can go over to engineeringevent.com. There's a lot of conferences out there But this one is one that Anthony and I have designed from the ground up to make sure that it's hitting the key issues that all of you out there in the industry are interested in when it comes to creating skill sets around being a seller-doer, business development, leadership, project management. We bring in a lot of experts and uh, practitioners who are out there in the industry doing this work, and we put it into a a format that's going to allow you to get the key information and work along other engineers just like yourself. So we've put a lot of energy into this. We know that we've had some great success in the past, and we'd love to see you down in New Orleans. You can head over to, again, engineeringevent.com. You can check out what's going on, look at the agenda, and by all means, get tickets so that you can link up with Anthony, I, and all the other engineers down in New Orleans. I want to bring us now into today's show, and I'm going to share a quote with you like I always do. This one's going to come from General Colin Powell. And he tells us that great leaders are almost always great simplifiers who can cut through argument, debate, and doubt to offer a solution everyone can understand. And with that, let's move into the main segment, how to use leadership in your engineering firm to attain high performance with leader, author, and coach, Steve Armstrong. Now it's time for the main segment of our show. And for today's main segment, I have with me Steve Armstrong. He's a Calgary-based speaker, educator, consultant, and leadership expert who works with technically and intellectually brilliant leaders who were never taught how to deal with people or who found themselves frustrated by not hitting their goals because of people issues. He's an expert at developing followers into leaders and building dedicated, loyal, and remarkable teams through the lessons that he's learned from 35 years as a leader, soldier, and humanitarian. Steve's honed his insights and leadership skills and his unique ability to inspire and teach others to lead. And he's only one of a handful of people in Canada who has planned and managed the relief and recovery responses and maintained very complex business continuity functions after numerous natural and man-made disasters. And if there has ever been a place that you might classify as a crucible for forging leadership, 
it would be a crisis. So Steve has learned his experience, has earned it in one of the best places to do so. He holds a master's degree in public policy and management, is the author of You Can't Lead from Behind, What I Learned in Combat About Leadership, People, and Profit. And I'm honored to have met Steve and have enjoyed reading and sharing his material with everyone. I've done that a lot through my Twitter feed at Engineer Leader, and you can go find that there. And if not, we're going to share with you his links and how you can get in touch with Steve and actually just go to his website and see it as well, which is absolutely awesome. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here on the show. For everyone listening, as always, you can go to the show notes for today's episode. They're going to be at engineeringcareercoach.com, and there you're going to find a summary of all the key points that we're going to discuss in today's episode, as well as links to all the resources, the websites, and any of the books that we're going to mention during the interview. And again, you're going to find the details at engineeringcareercoach.com. So Steve, we're here today to talk about leadership lessons learned from engineering companies. And I know that you've had this transition and this movement and you kind of, uh, I would call evolution, maybe transformation into being a coach of leadership and somehow ending up with working with a lot of engineers and technically uh, brilliant people. So can you share a little bit more about your background and how you ended up coaching engineering firms and technically advanced and brilliant people about leadership specifically? Well, my uh, career, I joined the Canadian Army as an infantryman in 1976, which was a lifetime ago, and uh, spent 22 years uh, serving around the world, retiring in 98 as a company sergeant major. And I would say, which would be in the American system, armed forces, probably the equivalent of a company first sergeant. I would say that that was probably the beginning of that experience was because I was responsible to the company commander and the battalion commander to make sure that our unit was ready to fight when the officers wanted were ready to lead. And a part of that was actually working with and mentoring the various junior officers, lieutenants, captains that would come through the company and sort of shoring them up mentoring them as as up-and-coming leaders at the same time making sure that my NCOs, my non-commissioned officers and our soldiers were prepared and ready to follow these people because they were in fact in charge much to the chagrin of maybe some young sergeants but that you know that was a thing that you had to work through with them after that after my army career I landed uh, with the Canadian Red Cross and I ended up in the disaster management business and for the most part I was working in an organization full of social workers, which was a bit of a shock to me. I ended up marrying a social worker, which added much complexity to my life. <laughs> and social workers, and then, but the work was actually being done by volunteers who were super smart. Like these people were coming from the, their real jobs or civilian jobs and careers and stepping into this uh, structure and organization. And, and in that role too, I had to link and mentor and link and explain and sometimes even translate language from one side to the other so they all everybody understood what the mission was and how we were going to get this work done and then when my time came to retire retire a couple years ago I realized along the way that what I was one of my strong skills was first identifying people who actually had leadership potential I realized that I'd made a career out of mentoring people and coaching them along and then in my third and hopefully final career as a as a coach and speaker and author is that I 
kind of tripped into this where I was bumping into project managers and engineers and a bit on the IT side where these people were technically like operating at an intellectual level that astounded me. And I was miles behind them and where they were operating, but they were often promoted or got into leadership positions because they were really super good at their job. And they were actually beginning to fail because no one had taken the time to show them, talk to them, mentor them, coach them on how to get other people to work for them, short of intellectually browbeating them, which is less than successful. So that's a two-minute tour of, of my career. And like I say, along the way, somehow or other, uh, through lots of great coaching and mentoring that I received from leaders who, my, some of my first sergeant majors in the Canadian Army were, were career war vets, and these guys had seen it all. And uh, right, right up to 2000s when, when people were... What an officer, to be an officer in the Army, you couldn't do it without a university degree. And to be able to transition through that period was all by coaching, mentoring, being able to translate complex things into simple language so a private could understand it and then turn around and explain it to a colonel was something that I got really good at doing. And and quite lucky, I identified that and built this career now where I'm working with these people who are so smart. That's brilliant, and I'm and I'm glad that you were that you're out there doing that because again the uh, material that I've you know, that we've been able to share just in the period of time that we've known each other has been fabulous, and I count you as one of the influencers even for myself. So I'm glad that we've had the opportunity to connect. So one of the things, a couple things actually that that I think are useful of to just you know kind of pull out of what you just shared with us, which I think is is useful for the audience that's listening, is one of the aspects is that you were able. You were tuned, attuned enough to be able to identify your own strengths, and then to build off of those, which I I believe is a you know is a mark of a of someone who has you know who has advanced or at least I will say at least moderate levels of of self mastery. This ability to be able to identify one's own strengths, and then to be able to you know to build opportunity off of that, which then then takes that leadership step. I guess what I maybe to ask is if you have any thoughts. Or advice that you can share with engineer leaders that are out there who maybe aren't sure of well, where are my strengths as a leader or even as a manager? How would I go about trying to identify those strengths other than just maybe hoping that one day all of a sudden I wake up and I'm like, ah, this is it. I finally figured out what it is. Was there a process that you use or was this something that just maybe maybe developed over time? In the beginning, it was an over the time thing. But really, I've been so lucky in my career to have these terrific mentors and bosses and leaders who were brutally honest <laughs> with me. Sometimes, sometimes uh, a drill sergeant in like the sort of the U.S. language or a, a platoon warrant officer in the Canadian Army, their, their brutal honesty can be pretty harsh and uh, pretty to the point. But I always learned from these guys, and I. At a certain point, you learn that they're not just blustery, loud people on a parade square. They're actually thoughtful human beings. And over the time, I learned, one of the things I learned is that everybody has a story. And when I deal with engineers in particular, or anyone who is in that sort of technically brilliant, sort of high operating level, I think they forget that people around them have have this story. You can learn from everybody. So one of the best pieces of advice I got one time was somebody come up to me and says, you know, you're a great soldier, son. He said, but just remember that uh, just because you're the smartest person in the room doesn't mean you have to show it off to everybody all the time. 
the first time I heard it, it sat poorly with me. But once I absorbed it, I realized that, yeah, you know what? All of these other people around me are smart and articulate in their own way, and they need to be listened to. And I find people who are intellectually miles ahead of other people around them, they kind of forget that these other guys are there, and girls are there, and they need to stop and listen to them. That's a great point. Something that was passed to me by one of my early mentors in my career was that everyone is a genius in their own right. Yep. And it wasn't meant in a in a derogatory, <laughs> derogatory format, which I, I think has actually been thrown at me a couple of different t- times by yeah. individuals I've worked for. But but that truly everyone has their own light. They've got their own their own genius. The one or maybe few things that they happen to be experts at. And you're absolutely right, Steve. If you take the time to listen to that, to observe that, and to find the strengths and to at least maybe observe the strengths of the people that work with you, from a team standpoint, it can be exceptional. And from a personal standpoint, it can be absolutely exceptional. And so that's a, that's a great point. I would add to that, too, is that people need to remember that they, these other folks around them have lives outside of that. And if you're not fully aware of what is going on with that person, with their children, their family, their husband, wives, that has such a direct impact on their work like and their ability to do their job properly. And if you're only focused on the technical side of what somebody is doing and not figuring out how to engage them as a human being and learning those things, you may very well have a, a worker at best, but you'll never have a team player and a, and a supporting uh, team person for you to get your goals and accomplishments done. That's absolutely a great point. Let's unpack that one a little bit. Sure. Because I think for, for you and me, who you know, we, we both come from a military background and we both understand because of that, that when we, when we worked within that environment, the organizations that we worked in were... They weren't just a, it wasn't an engineering firm or it wasn't a infantry unit. It was, I mean, it was that, that's what it was called, but it was a family mm-hmm. and it was a, it was a team. It was more than just a group of individuals who were thrown together, you know, from seven in the morning till six in the afternoon. I mean, these were people that you shared everything with and quite frankly, they were your family. And even into the last unit that I was in, you know, everyone was responsible for everybody else. I mean, we had recall rosters, we had phone trees, and you know, basically, the, you know, everything was was really predicated about making sure that we were taking care of everybody around us. And just from conversations that I've had, and even my own observations within a lot of organizations, engineering companies, and other organizations, that, that isn't necessarily the same environment that exists. So I'd be curious to to know from your experiences as you as you've been out coaching now and working with different organizations, how have you seen instances where organizations were successful and effective in fostering that type of a family type of environment, or have you experienced maybe something different, like it doesn't go that route? And what are some of the some of the shortfalls that you perceive if an, if an organization doesn't put that in place? So I would say, yes, I've seen both examples and I've seen extremes on both sides. So I think people today, in fact, I, I'm just exploring on my blog in this next few weeks and months through January, February of this year is uh, this issue of servant leadership. The tie in is this, is that people have forgotten that, yes, you can get a lot out of your people by serving them, but that doesn't ab- abdicate you as a leader. And in one example, and it was an engineering firm. They created almost a frat house environment of 
they were tight. They were all good friends and family, but nobody was in charge. <laughs> nobody was the leader. And then at the same time, I've seen organizations where the leader was an autocratic and people worked there because they had to, not because they wanted to. And they got their work done, but it was mindless, numbing work and nobody was super engaged. And like everything in life, there's a balance in between those two places. The one thing I would tell anybody, engineer, professional, a leader of any sort, is that your people want to be led. And how you get there is a consideration, and, and it's open for debate. So when I, my last role with the Canadian Red Cross, I spent the first year or so making sure that my whole team came into the lunchroom and sat down and ate together to build that team. And it was very social. That one hour between 12 and 1 every day was more like a frat house than a workplace. There was lots of joking and teasing going on. But when everybody went back to work, then everyone knew their job and they went and got into it. So you can have that. You can have that fun side and you can have that frat house side. But somebody has to be in charge. And somebody needs to set the example and set the objectives and goals of the organization. You're absolutely right. And, and I've experienced the same thing in, in throughout my career and even in some of the, some of the work that I'm, uh, I'm involved with you know, most recently and some of the project work that I'm doing as well, that there's – there's good leadership. There's um, just like, like you mentioned, there's a structure that's there. <laughs> there's a time for the frat house annex. But at the end of the day, people know who are know who is in charge. And there's there's some guidance that's exi- that exists there. And I think you're absolutely right. That it's so important to have that there. So let me, let me ask you this question. From your coaching, are there some examples that perhaps you can share that maybe highlight for us some of the most common, few of the most common leadership shortfalls that exist with engineer leaders? And then the flip side of that, how does, with those shortfalls, what maybe are some of the ways that an individual engineer leader could look to mitigate those shortfalls? The short flip answer is communication. And when I say communication, I don't mean communicating. I mean talking and being clear about what you want. The biggest thing I've noticed in the engineers that I've coached is they did not come to clear agreement on expectations. So the boss or the supervisor may very well have said what they wanted to get done that day, but the person they were talking to did not hear what that person was trying to say. (laughs) They took away an interpretation. And so that's the first one. And then for some reason, I don't necessarily think it's an engineering trait, but it certainly has been a very common theme through the people I've dealt with, is they do not come back and check. (laughs) They never follow up that things are going well and they leave people kind of on their own hoping and praying. I don't know. Maybe they are hoping and praying that this is all going to work out okay. And then they get frustrated and angry when the project or the part of the project that person was supposed to deliver was late, wrong, over budget, whatever it might be. So what I've really found with the people, even like the CEOs that I've coached in engineering firms, as well as mostly at the manager's level, but some up and coming. uh, I've been asked to coach a few people that are kind of up and coming leadership potential people. And really half of my job with those people is bridging the conversation between the boss and the direct report so that both are clear that what are the expectations? What are we going to get out of this? What do I need to do to make sure my boss is happy? As opposed to saying, hey, I want to, I need a building as a tomb for my wife who I've loved forever and ending up with the Taj Mahal. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, good point. Right? Like, it's like two different things, right? Somebody might say, well, I just, all it, well, maybe all he wanted was just a nice tombstone. And next thing you know, he's got this palace. <laughs> or the other way around, which was probably worse. And uh, so what I've been encouraging these guys to do is actually set up personal charters with the work that, that just as you would as an engineer building a project charter for a building a power plant or a airport a runway or a whatever is when you're talking to your employees is actually set up a charter between the two of you is okay this is what we expect this is the parameters this is your budget these are the resources I'm going to give to you this is when it's expected I'm going to check in with you every Tuesday morning to make sure everything is going okay and on the other side, the supervisor should be challenging and pushing their direct reports. Okay, so what do you need? How are you going to get this job done? What do you need? And be very clear about that. And I've even gone as far as saying, and then just follow up in a written email. It can be friendly and chatty, but this is what we agreed to. And Or if it's a performance issue, then it becomes something that you can both sign off on to be make it more formal If it's if you're getting to the point where you're you know, performance managing somebody. These are priceless, <laughs> priceless leadership guidance points. I mean, fabulous. And I'd be happy, Chris, to add one. Like I have one that I can share. and That'll be awesome to uh, to link that up. In fact, one of the things that I want to do, Steve, I'm going to link up. I've got a, a video that we share with individuals who are new, you know, who sign up for our newsletter. It talks about expectations. Actually, I wrote this down on my notes here, interpretation versus expectations which I think is absolutely priceless for any leader, engineer leader, any leader period, whatever organization you're involved with, even if you're the troop committee chair for your Boy Scout unit, making sure that there's clear expectations for everyone is, I think, one of the fundamental things that a leader absolutely has to do, because at that point, there's crystal clarity in what's expected, not only for the leader, but for everyone who is looking to that individual for guidance. And I've got some material that I think we'll also link up in the show notes and share with everyone. And when you brought up validate, the first thing that popped into my mind, this is something that I attribute back to one of my first commanders. This is back in the early 90s. So it wasn't that far removed from Ronald Reagan, who has the, uh, you know, the, the quote that I think has been attributed to him of trust but verify. And that has literally been a part of my mantra as a leader from almost day one. I mean, it comes from right very, very early in my own professional career that when it came to validation is that I would always trust but verify. And and I think you're absolutely right that there's, especially for anyone who's who's venturing into the realm of delegation, it's so important to have that trust that once you tell somebody to go do something, they're going to take care of the business. But if there's any level of risk associated with that, there has to be a follow-up mechanism. Well, Absolutely. The thing that throws me all the time is people say, well, I, you know, I've delegated. I don't want to be a micromanager. Well, micro, there's a reason people micromanage because it's important yeah. and you should be following up. And, and the other reason is, and it's purely self-preservation, is you have a boss. Mm-hmm. I haven't met anybody who doesn't have a boss. And if you're not meeting their expectations, it won't be your underlings that get shown the door. You'll be the first guy out the door. Yep. It took quite a bit of time for me to articulate this clearly is like when I was talking to my direct reports, I was I told them what my boss's performance objectives were for me. And then I said, if you can see that these are my performance objectives, what I have to get done this year, guess what you guys are all working towards? (laughs) My performance objectives become your performance objectives. 
End of story. That's a brilliant way to place it. I, I, I've not heard it that way. I think that's an absolutely fabulous way to be able to share and set expectations because you're right, because at the end of the day, as a leader, if you have performance expectations that are that you perceive as being maybe, I won't say unrealistic, but challenging, it makes it even more important to share that with the people that are working for you because what will happen is even if you tell yourself that you don't want to hold them responsible for that and perhaps be a unreasonable manager or leader, unconsciously you're going to end up in that area. There's going to be fear involved with it if you think it's a challenge, and that fear is going to drive you to be a very it's going to drive you to be a very different person than you normally would want to be, most likely. I think the the flip side of the way that I've seen that before, Steve has been has been kind of addressed that um, it was kind of almost put on the shoulders of us as the followers, which was to look forward at what your boss's responsibilities were, and then and then look at your boss's boss's responsibilities were and work to fulfill their responsibilities. So it's interesting that you brought it up the way that you brought it up. And I actually, quite frankly, like it that way because it, again, it puts it back into the expectation versus interpretation mode. So I'm just going to tell you right up front, here's what I'm working for. (laughs) You might as well, might as well jump on board. Yeah. And if we can figure out how to support some of the nice to haves, then let's, we can do that too. But really, if the work you're doing and the work your people are doing is not contributing to your organization hitting its objectives and mission and life, then it's wasted work. Absolutely. And worse, you're wasting the time and lives and careers of good people. Definitely. And that's unconscionable as far as I'm concerned. My wife had a role with an organization here in Calgary, and in a year there was eight or ten people on our team, and it was a pretty high value team as far as like salary and that kind of stuff goes. So I don't know how much money over a year it would have cost to keep them. They barely accomplished anything in a year. First off, it was an unconscionable waste of money. But imagine just the potential that those eight or 10 people had to do good work, move things forward who were wasted. Absolutely. With an audience of engineers who are listening to this and the thought of 12 months worth of worth of time squandered on ineffectiveness and, and no tangible results, you're right. It becomes almost inconsciousable. So, so important as a, as, a, as a leader to be able to move, you know, obviously to move the ball forward with respect to the project that you're working on or the mission that you're attempting to accomplish, but more importantly, to not lose sight of the uh, human aspect of it, which is at the end of the day, every one of us wants to go home and feel like they've, they're contributing to something of importance. So just a, just a yeah. absolutely... Absolutely important aspect. So we originally connected, which is pretty awesome, about a leadership and a management review that you were conducting for a sizable electrical engineering firm. So can you explain what this was? This project I was working on was is for, uh, not insignificant, there were around 100 um, uh, employees plus contractors, electrical engineering, principally working in the petroleum industry and field here in Calgary. Uh, for those, you know, around... Calgary and Alberta is sort of like the Houston and Texas of uh, of Canada, where where the petrochemical industry is uh, reigns supreme. So most work is done around a lot of mega projects and and refining and and oil sands and that kind of stuff. I bumped into the CEO of this company at an event, and uh, we just started chatting. It was I'm kind of a nosy guy, and I was kind of probing around, seeing what was going on, and uh, I could tell that something was really bothering him. So I invited him out for lunch. 
and it came out in lunch. I'm not sleeping. He says, I'm so unhappy with my company, the work that I'm doing. I can't even sleep at night. It's affecting my relationship with my wife, his one partner. They were the original founders of this firm and his children. And he was just completely miserable. So as we started probing around in it, his company was, in effect, it was failing because there's, there's no captain of the ship. Nobody's steering it forward. And he had really abdicated his responsibility as a CEO and as a captain of that organization. And he was hoping that all of his managers and his senior people were just going to be able to figure out how to make it work on their own. He referred to himself as a people pleaser. And I said to him, I'm a pretty blunt guy, and this wasn't exactly the language. I said, well, you're screwed, buddy. I said, if you're a people pleaser and a boss, Mm. you're in trouble. Of course, who wants to have people hate them? That's not the goal in this. But you cannot allow, be a people pleaser and let everyone do their own thing and get your work done. So we had a number of conversations. It was a no harm, no foul sort of discussion over a couple of months, just with him and I over coffee or a glass of wine or a beer and and to figure out what was going on with his perspective on his company. So what we came away with was as the economy and the petroleum commodity prices were dropping, the money was tightening up and and what could have been papered over before with um, money when times were really good, the cracks were really starting to show in this organization. And what I did was went in and I interviewed all of this management team and a cross section of employees. And then we electronically surveyed everybody to verify both sides. And what we walked away from was that there was no structure here. It had grown a bit like Topsy. Things were just sort of happening. There was no clear leadership in the organization. Everybody was kind of blaming everybody else. Each of the managers thought all of the other managers weren't pulling their weight. And sadly, some of the employees, they even said language like, I felt unsafe. I feel unsafe at work. It wasn't that they were being bullied or or physically unsafe. There was no security for them. They didn't know who to trust anymore. And uh, this was a pretty high functioning, high potential. You know, we're talking tens of millions of dollars in revenue company. And it was uh, swirling around the toilet, actually because there was nobody there in charge. Wow. It was crazy. And whether it's me or somebody else, if you're in that situation, you will not get the truth as a leader. Because first off, there was a lack of trust. So this, his own people weren't telling him what was going on and how bad it was. And in fact, the shock that they had when they actually read the survey results, which were completely anonymous from the employees, language like unsafe, nobody's in charge. People are managers are self-serving. It goes on and on and on. It was a litany of things. And this was actually quite hard for these guys to take. The brutal, honest truth is never pretty and never easy to take when you get it. To give credit, I have a bit of an analogy. It's probably a little politically incorrect, but it was like it was sort of like the basis of Alcoholics Anonymous. So you can't get better unless you admit you have a problem. And these guys were courageous enough to admit they had a problem. Yeah, it certainly sounds like they did. That was a big step for it. They wanted it to be better. It wasn't what they wanted to do with their lives. With their, They created this company and they wanted it to be good. And to give them credit, they uh, invested a lot. And I was lucky enough to be asked to help them figure that out. And one of the first things we did was reestablish lines of command and line, old school org chart and expectations. 
managers got job descriptions and their job descriptions included the projects that they were working on and what they were expected to achieve to go back to that sort of uh, model of personal charters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sat with and coached the two principals, the, the president, CEO, and the chief operating officer who were the original equal partners that founded this company. And we walked through this and I supported them. I coached them on language. It's simple things, Chris. Like, uh, for example... I asked the question in a sort of in a bullpen area, you know, a common area in the middle of the office where lots of people were working, lots of desks. I was curious because they had some offsite teams that were working embedded in and working with uh, other petroleum companies like, like actual producers. I said, how many people are at this company? And the president said five. And somebody said, no, no, there's only three. And I thought, how could you not know? You're only a hundred and you know hundred people. Yeah. How on earth would you not know that you jettisoned, laid off two or three people? Yep. Which was a huge eye opener for me as an organization that was not functioning properly. And then the kicker was the presence. All oh, right. Somebody said, all oh, right. Yeah, we had to fry two people. <laughs> so we got in behind closed doors. And I said to the person that said this, we fried two people. I said, if you ever say that out loud around your own people, I won't work for you anymore. I said, do you just dismiss two human beings as bacon? And everybody else here is scared and worried about what's going on. Do you think they will actually work for you now that you so casually and harshly dismiss these two individuals as, you know, so much flotsam in the seat? To give the guy credit, I know why he did it. It's tough laying people off and it's easier to to write it off or be a little black humor about it and say those kind of things. And maybe that's okay to do behind closed doors, but you never talk like that in front of other human beings. No, absolutely not. The outshot of what happened there was actually talking to people and, and getting them to start at the top with the leaders, the senior leaders, getting them to talk to their employees. And every time I have a coaching call, I probably talk to them either as a pair, the two principals or individually, at least every week. And my first comment is, did you get out of your office today? Did you walk around and did you ask people how they were doing? So that almost brings us back to uh, some of the, uh, I'll call it old school. It's probably not that old school for you and I, but management by walking around. Yeah. You know, it is old school. Like I just read something today about Caesar and I can't remember the name of the novel. There's a series of novels about Caesar that I've quite enjoyed and and I, every once in a while, I look back and see with that. And he knew his soldiers' names. He was at the front. He was up with his soldiers. And they would see him fighting side by side with them. Of course that these people are going to perform at a whole completely different level of performance when they see the CEO, Caesar in this case, going toe-to-toe against the enemy and moving their objectives forward than they would if he was just on his horse on a hill and behind with a bunch of people waving fans on him to keep him cool. Yep, absolutely. To me, it's second nature. My last job job, I was had 120 paid staff and about 2,000 volunteers and working for me for Red Cross. And if I walked out and saw the guys in the warehouse struggling with something, I'd stop and pick it up and lend them a hand. Yep. For you and me, it's basic leadership 101. And I think it's easy because leadership is never easy. It doesn't matter how long you've been at the task and, and in those roles, but you begin to develop a sense for what is needed and what's important. And it can be a challenge if you're in a position where 
like a specific actual position within a company, but literally you're in a position where you don't have that experience. And so that you're not clear on what the expectations are even for you as a leader. And I think those are some of the things that you, you know, you highlighted or that at least I took away from your discussion about the about this company that you were working with and some of the challenges that they saw. And I, I really, you know, I took away from that. Really it's structure, clearly identified structure. And again, we come back to this item, I even call it just an issue of clearly stated expectations and how important it is to have a structure. And that structure is not only the hierarchy of the organization, but clearly stating, okay, what are the expectations within that structure for every level, for every person that's there? Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you've seen this, not only not only through this organization, but others that you've worked with is that once you have individuals who know and are very clear on what their expectations are, that's almost the sky's the limit because people know the frame that they're able to operate within, correct? Absolutely. My mind goes back, well, for sure to the military, the army, but when I was leading disasters across North America and, and the world, most of the times I had volunteers working for me. And there's no paycheck to hold over somebody's head to get them to do anything. They were there because they wanted to serve and wanted to do good work. But if they were frustrated by that or challenged or not well-led, there was no reason for them to stick around. Most of them were making more money than I was anyways in their civilian jobs. So they were there out of the goodness of their heart. The point being is, you know, I was always extraordinarily clear about this is what we're going to do here. This is our objective Whatever it might be of an evacuation before, we're going to house these people. We're going to make sure they're safe and sound. And my biggest instruction to all of those people, especially my direct reports, is this is what you cannot do. In the military, Chris, you're aware, with, you know, of terms of like left and right arcs of fire. Mm-hmm. And for those who aren't familiar with the term, like that means that everything that's outside of those boundaries, those are, you cannot engage. Everything within is fair game. And so I would always tell people what they weren't allowed to do, what I wanted them to get done, and what they weren't allowed to do, and then I let them do it. People might read into something I said earlier about structure and accountability and expectations into saying that's, you know, boxing people in. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if they're clear about what they're to do and what they aren't allowed to do to get that done, then allow them the freedom to, to work within that area. And understand that they're going to do a good job. They might not do the job that you would have done, but they're going to do a perfectly good job in there and you're going to achieve your results and let them do it. If they make a mistake, call them on it, but don't beat them up over it. That's a priceless way to state it is that, especially because we've we've talked quite a bit in the discussion so far about expectations. And so you know, what we're saying is that you're instead of the box, which I think there's, I think this is a very overused cliche of, you know, out of the box thinking, just my own professional opinion of that. But we're really not talking about, like you mentioned, like putting the box around anything. I view it as putting a frame around something. And I think that everybody likes to have a framework within which to work. And as an engineer, you know, from an engineer perspective, it's designing the structure before we start putting the cladding on and anything else on the outside of the facility of the building. It's got to have a structure. There's got to be something underneath it within which we can do the design that we're going to place on the outside. So as you mentioned, it's, it's really helping to identify, here's what your boundaries are, and then 
here's what we're going to achieve. This is what we're aiming at. I think that's absolutely vitally important to allow people to be able to then create from that. So absolutely priceless inputs. Yeah. We touched on this earlier, this idea, this concept about delegation, which I think is so important to leaders and to, and to managers of other people. And really, quite frankly, probably to anybody who finds themselves in a position where they have too many tasks to accomplish based off of the amount of, literally, the amount of time that they've got in their days. So I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts on some of the best ways that you've either personally experienced or you've observed for effective delegation of important tasks? Well, time is finite. And I would say that the first thing is, I've said this a bit earlier, what is the work that's moving you towards your mission and objectives? And then who's the best person to pick that up afterwards? So there's two answers to that question. One is people that are technically smart in that particular area. So for example, a communications manager, well, obviously they're going to be in charge of that particular area that you need to have done to move things forward. The other thing is, who are the up-and-coming young leaders that you can actually give these tasks to and allow them to improve and grow as people and leaders and employees or in your organization? And when you delegate, the first thing that people forget when they delegate something is they're still responsible (laughs) to getting it done, not the person you delegated it to. So you as a leader, as a manager or a president or whatever it is, you might delegate this role or this function to somebody, but you're still accountable for that being done. That other person is going to do it for you. And that goes back again, it might sound like a broken record, but it goes back to that charters. Okay, Chris, I'm delegating you this job. This is how it fits into our overall organization. This is how it fits into us achieving our mission. This is why it's important. I'm going to give this to you. These are the resources you have available to make sure you get done. Now, what do you need from me to help you move this thing forward? It's so important to go through that route. And I think there may be some, maybe some of the listeners are thinking, well, that just seems like a very, wow, it seems like a very, you know, very drawn out, almost procedural type of activity go through and do that. But from my share, some, some ideas, you know, just even from my own professional experience in working with projects, in that it is so vitally important in a project to be able to be very clear and concise and to wrap up like this is specifically what these are the actions that I need you to do that, that you're not being impersonal, nor are you being too, uh, trying to think of the right word to say here, too prescriptive or maybe. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe prescriptive is a great way to say it, you know, too prescriptive of the of what needs to happen. I think it's so vitally important in any of the work that you're doing, whether it's within it for an engineering project that you're working on, or let's say you're you're volunteering for a church organization or for any other type of organization that you want to be in a position that when you delegating something, when you're passing along important tasks, that you are very clear on what's expected and what the elements are going to be that are involved with that. As we record this interview today, Steve, I, I had phone conversations of myself on a couple of different projects that I'm working on. Quite frankly, I've got a template that I use for my conversations in these because they're very specific about being specific to who is responsible for which tasks, what are the deliverables that are expected, timelines, et cetera. And in fact, as I just mentioned that, that'll be something that I'll, I'll include in the uh, show notes, a, a PDF download that you can anyone can download that 
that outlines what that conversation log looks like, if you will. But the intent behind that is, is so that when everybody gets off the phone, everybody knows exactly who's doing what. And it's so important in any kind of communications you have, especially as a leader, to be able to make sure that everybody knows where their part is and what they're doing. Just to build on that, one of the things that I recall, and you're probably quite familiar with it too, is like the commander's orders meetings when they would issue his instructions to the units. At the end of that session meeting and his instructions, a really good commander would look at everyone around them and say, okay, repeat back to me what you are to do. Absolutely. Next, you repeat. And so he confirmed that the person that he just issued instructions to got it. <laughs> it paraphrased it back and often in a way that they understood it, but made sure that, that there was this confirmation piece at the end of those discussions. They weren't discussions, they were instructions and orders. But there was a conversation at the end of that that confirmed that the expectations were going to be met. Absolutely. You know, Steve, I shared with you that I've, I've recently begun working with a uh, virtual assistant. And this is one of those situations where the, the two of us are we're separated. We've got the tyranny of distance between the two of us. And so it becomes so important that the communications that we have are clear and the delegation of tasks when we work with each other. I, you know, I classify to her as task transfer is very clear. And, and this is it's exactly what I do is in the conversations we have when a task is being transferred over to her, especially if it's a process, that there is, I literally have her repeat back to me what she's going to do, hmm. how it's going to be executed specifically so that I have visibility and understanding that she has heard what I'm expecting. Not because I think that that's not going to be done correctly, but just as you mentioned, I think it's important for the leader to be able to understand, okay, I understand exactly what needs to be done, but did everybody understand what I do, what I'm ex yeah. what I want them to do or what I'm expecting? Well, we've all been employees when we walked away from our boss going, what the hell did he just ask me to do? I have no idea what to do next. That's a terrible feeling. It's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible position to put. And to put somebody in that position is, is not fair. Absolutely. You've recently published a book. We're going to provide the link uh, for everyone to be able to put their hands on that. Let me shift topics here and just ask you, can you tell us a little bit about that book? And then I actually have a specific question that I'm going to ask you after you tell us about the book that's tied back to the book because I've had an opportunity to go through it when I think it's an absolutely awesome read. So tell us a little bit about the book. Well, the book's title is You Can't Lead From Behind, What I Learned in Combat About Leadership, People, and Profit. And it's a it's not the biggest tome you'll ever pick up. I'm quite proud of it. My mom's proud of it because for a guy that didn't finish high school, I think it's a major accomplishment. So that was good. Always good to have your mom happy with you at the end of the day. Amen. And it's really, a, there's a series of, of anecdote stories from my career, both in the military and Red Cross and in life with some assessments that you're able to kind of gauge where you are in areas of trust and delegation and motivation and the like. And then some tips and hints that you can use and put to work right away. I've gotten some great reviews. I've been quite pleased with the comments of people. It's, it really is is a, like almost a primer or a memory aid to tell people to to actually treat human beings like human beings and be clear about what they're doing and how to build trust and and how, what a force multiplier as as uh, Blanchard would say that would be to uh, to your organization. And uh, yeah, and for sure, there's a 
anyone's welcome to go on Amazon and, and buy the ebook. But for your listeners and people that are tuning in, uh, there's a free PDF that I'll make available for everybody, Chris. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. And I, I really, truly encourage everyone to go and download it. I've, Steve shared a copy with me, and I've had an opportunity to go through it a couple different times. I've actually shared it with my son. He's read it, and I know has has enjoyed it as well. And one of the items that I that I wanted to to touch on that came out of it because it's something that I I guess I've, I've become somewhat attuned to just because of of different articles that I've read and different uh, different outlets related to business, and it has to do with regards to the uh, the topic of complacency in um, in business and in organizations with essentially with people who are unengaged and unhappy with the work they're doing, which I think is just a tragedy for anyone to be investing their life in something that they're not happy with. And I'm just kind of interested to hear your thoughts on what you think constitutes complacency in an engineering team and, and how an engineering leader might protect against having that happen. I mean, what might be some tangible actions an engineer leader could take to make sure that their team doesn't succumb to complacency? So the first thing I would say is complacency and unengaged employees is is almost always 100% responsibility of the organization uh, that they're working in. That said, to engage people, one is they have to be clearly connected with their work to whatever it is you're trying to achieve. It's a project or a runway or a road or a information technology system. They need to see that their work is actually valuable and participating in and contributing to the accomplishment of whatever that is at the end of the day, whatever that objective is. They need to have clear expectations around their work, who their boss is, their amount of freedom they have to do their job, and they need to be made feel like a human being who is an active participant in the team. And I think, with all due respect to the profession, Chris, often people who are in the, those intellectually high-performing roles and, and operating at an intellectual level of way above the average mortal human being forgets that these people are people. <laughs> and so you need to suck it up a little bit and go sit with them at their desk and talk to them like a human being and ask about their kids and hear about their stupid weekend that you've heard 10,000 times before, but you have to do that. And you have to make them feel part that you care about them equally as much as making them sure that, that they know that they're an integral part of the organization. Who wants to do good work if you think it's wasted work? Absolutely. You know, I share an observation from my own experience. As an engineer and a leader myself, I know that especially earlier in my career, there were certainly times where I became, I will say, very frustrated with, um, you know, there would be work. I was very, very focused on the work that needed to be done. And felt that any intrusions on my work that needed to be accomplished by anyone else other than, than my, let's say, my secretary or my senior NCO that was working for me was a violation of my space. You know, I had to focus on the work that I needed to be done and would do that at the exception of, of everything else. It was only through the sage guidance of some of the senior NCOs, <laughs> non-commissioned officers that worked with me that I, I eventually came to understand that that was very much a, a failure of leadership on my own behalf and that the, the necessity and the success of leadership in the organization really, quite frankly, was going to be built off of my engagement with people, my, my understanding of what their challenges were and literally taking time, just as you mentioned, to hear about that weekend for the 15th time. 
And so although as much as it was painful and Steve, I'll, I'll tell you, sometimes even in some of the experiences that I still have in, in, in some of the different work that I've got, it's painful sometimes to even sit through some of those discussions, even to this point in my life. I realize now at this point, the importance of doing that, because what may seem trivial to you or a waste of time to you is truly not viewed that way from somebody else's perspective. And, and you're right, as a leader, it's so important to be plugged in and to, uh, to provide a greater meaning. This overall thing that we call work. If you don't take the time to listen to what they're talking about and the mundane and routine in their lives, and if you dismiss them during those times, they will never bring to you something important. Absolutely. One, a different way to look at this, and it's especially for anyone who's listening that maybe is involved in, uh, truly it's involved maybe even in business development, is that if you were involved in a conversation with a client that was going to bring you in you know, a, a very sizable project, you would potentially sit there and listen to them talk about anything. And you would be totally engaged, 100%, and doing everything that you could to put the best light on it, no matter how painful the conversation may have been. As a leader of an organization who has a sizable investment in their, their staff, and just as a leader of other human beings, it's, you know, I almost have to ask the question, what makes that any different than, than that engagement with the client? I think it's even more important, certainly at least the same. You, at a minimum, should be investing at least the same amount of effort and the same amount of um, interest than you would if you were out there trying to build business and bring clients in. You said it perfectly well. Like it, Nobody is working for a paycheck. People do not leave generally don't leave organizations because their pay is too low. They're, they leave because there's other reasons and pay becomes an extenuating factor. I, when I was, Red Cross is not the highest paying organization in the world and people would leave for career opportunities, but they weren't leaving because of the paycheck. Yep. So the point of that being is this, is that people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. I don't have a full sense of all of the projects, Chris, that you've worked on through your career, but you know, in Calgary, like people wear with pride the, the jackets that get printed up at the commissioning of an oil sands refinery. Or they just built a 54-story building downtown. And there's people that wear the jacket that I worked on, the bow tower, like as if they were an NHL hockey team captain. Hmm. <laughs> They're so proud of that, that they participated in building that. Now, not all of us are lucky enough to, to build a 54-story building or the largest runway in the world or whatever it might be. But we all want to feel that we're doing something useful. And by talking to people and investing in them and making them feel important is the only way that's going to get done. Absolutely. Well, Steve, thanks very much for the interview today. I, if you're willing to do so, I'd like you to stick around for the Take Action Today segment of the show. Certainly. We'll provide a little bit more actionable advice for everyone that's listening and for everyone that's out there. Stand by. We'll be right back in just a moment. Now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. And today, both Steve and I are going to share with you some thoughts about leadership excellence in engineering firms. But first, I want to let you know that there's only one event designed from the ground up to transform engineers from educated technical professionals into effective communicators, powerful networkers, and dynamic leaders. 
It's the Engineer Career Summit, 12 through 14 May in New Orleans. Now, this event is designed with one purpose in mind, to provide you with actionable steps you could take to move your career and life to a whole new level, past the blocks, hurdles, or challenges that you're currently facing. Now, it's not a professional organization trade show, and it's not a two-day PDH cram session. It's an opportunity to connect with other motivated engineers like you and hear from successful engineers and thought leaders on topics like leadership, networking, communications, business development, and a whole lot more. Oh, and there's plenty of chances to socialize with others during awesome after-session dinners. Now, tickets are still on sale, and you can head over to engineeringevent.com and get yours today. So I want to share with you the components that make a difference in the level of excellence a person or even an engineering firm delivers to others. Throughout my career, I've witnessed uh, variability in the level of excellence delivered. I mean, I'll just be honest with you, both of myself, but certainly in the others that I've observed. And I'd love to say that I personally deliver excellence every day, all the time. But the fact is that none of us do. And depending on the issue that's at hand or the situation or the environmental factors, the level of excellence that's going to be delivered may vary. It's like so many things in life, you know, the quality is not consistent over time. There's variability. And I might ask, you know, why does Six Sigma or Lean exist as disciplines in their own right? I mean, it's there to control variability. So as engineers, we're, we're not knowledgeable, you know, we're not unknowledgeable of this, of this uh, concept of, of variability that exists. And as a engineer leader, one of our challenges is to identify why is there variability in excellence and what causes it not only in ourselves, but in others. Let's take an engineering firm or project management office, perhaps the one in which you work. Let's take that for an example. All things being equal, the education, the levels of responsibility, the types of work, the training, you're going to find a spectrum of excellence. Some of these organizations are going to deliver excellence on every task, while others, regardless of what the task is, is going to bring subpar work to the table. And I think that the variability is caused, I mean, it's caused by multiple ingredients, but let's, let's just unpack three of them that I'll share here today. And, and the first one is belief. I mean, if you believe that you can't accomplish something, you're absolutely right. You're not going to be able to. But on the other hand, if you believe that you can accomplish it, then you're going to be able to. And maybe it's going to take you days or weeks, maybe even months to be successful, but eventually you're going to succeed. And as a leader or in a leadership role, that individual, what you believe and whether you believe an objective can be reached or not is going to doom not only yourself, but your entire team to either success or to failure. And the reason, again, is that that limiting or that unlimiting belief of what can potentially become the reality. I think the second element is our mental syntax. And what I mean by this is kind of the basics are our subconscious mind accounts, depending on where you look and what study you look at, for 90% of the activity that's going on inside of our head. And with that amount of, of subconscious power, that mental power that's going on, there's a lot of processing of information that's taking place where we may or may not have visibility on it. And one of the things that our subconscious mind is really good at is processing negative inputs. And that means that whatever goes into it, the subconscious mind is going to record it as a positive. So if you think to yourself, well, I don't want to make a mistake on this project, your subconscious mind is going to be focusing on mistake. And because it doesn't want to do negatives, the focus will become mistake and associate everything with it as mistake. So the fix is to think in positive, non-limiting terms. So instead of thinking, I don't want to make a mistake, you need to be thinking, I want to deliver perfection. And the third, I think, is physiology, which is tied directly to our bodies and, and, and how we use it. So our breath, our movement, 
And I think even really importantly, our posture. So what most of us, you know, we take for granted how we sit. We take for granted how our body does what it does. But I want to just share two examples, very simple examples of, of what I mean about the physiology aspects. And, and that has to do with regards to breath and, again, specifically posture. And so let's just, you know, if you just start taking shallow, quick breaths, just go ahead and do that. You know, how do you feel? Most likely, if you're taking shallow, quick breaths, you're going to feel anxious. And when we breathe with shallow and quick breaths, our bodies immediately shift into a fight or flight mode. Even if you don't have a need to do that, you're not ready to go, you know, to go to fisticuffs or run out of the building. Our bodies are hardwired to prepare for battle or to run the safety. That's just how we are physiologically. Now, sit at your desk hunched over. Okay, if you're sitting there, some of us stand at our desk. That's usually what I do at my desk as I'm standing. But if you're sitting at your desk, just you know, sit hunched over. Okay, guess what? Hey, when you're hunched over, you're sending signals throughout your body subconsciously to adopt a depressed mood. And there's multiple studies. There's one that, uh, that I can link up here from a few years ago from the European Journal of, of Social Psychology that talked, really kind of identified for us that participants were asked through that particular study to list positive or negative personal traits while holding different postures. And they found that the respondents who were in these different postures, they responded differently. Basically, the bottom line was if you were sitting up straight, they had very much more positive strategies. So I think my mom had it right whenever she told me to, to sit up straight, Steve. I think she, she chastised me all the time about making sure that I was standing up straight or sitting up straight or whatever it was. I think she had it right. And so those are those are a few of the just three three different uh, variabilities that I think that really kind of uh, impact excellence and the type of uh, leadership that we deliver and, and can deliver within our organizations. But I want to turn it over to you, Steve, now at this point, and just ask you if you let's say you had sixty seconds in an elevator with an engineer leader, what might be two pieces of advice about leadership that you would share with her and why? If I had sixty seconds, Chris, I'd do the two things I would say is one. It's one action. I get up from behind your desk and walk around and visit your people in their workplaces, on-site, off-site. I would encourage them to say, one, make one connection for the person as an individual. How do they and their work fit into the organization meeting their objectives? And it could be as simple as the work you did on the document control on that project really contributed us to uh, nail it with our clients. They were really happy with that. Something quite simple. And the other one would be never ask an employee or someone you're working with how they were doing because they will tell you fine. Always ask them what they're working on and how is that going. And you'll get a completely different perspective on what's happening within your company. Steve, thank you very much for that. These are absolutely great great points. And I, and I appreciate not only those, but I appreciate the conversation that we've had for, this is actually probably one of the longer uh, interviews that we've had and absolutely fabulous one. So I'm, I'm glad that you've had the opportunity to take the time and your schedule to, uh, to join us today and to, and to share with us your thoughts and perspectives on, on leadership. And again, thank you very much for making available to all the listeners your latest book and everyone who's listening, you'll be able to, uh, to access that by going to engineeringcareercoach.com, looking for today's episode by title, and you'll be able to uh, put your hands on that. So Steve, again, thank you very much for your time today. Entirely my pleasure, Chris, and all, but nothing but the best uh, in leadership to all of the, are your listeners. Thank you so much. 
So again, everyone, I, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. We, Anthony, and I would love to hear your feedback, your comments, and your questions. You can always go over to engineeringcareercoach.com and either search again for this episode, leave your question there in the comments section, or you can visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We always monitor your comments, and we're going to respond if you leave us one. In fact, your comment may make its way into one of our question and answer sessions. We'd love to be able to uh, communicate back and forth, not only with you, but with all the listeners who oftentimes share the exact same questions and concerns about their engineering career that you have. And until next time, please continue to engineer your own success. Thank you for listening to the Engineering Career Coach podcast. Be sure to visit engineeringcareercoach.com where you can find all past episodes and also download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also to help develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.